From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 182 of the Killing It Killing podcast. This is Carl, joined as always by Dave and Ryan. And we just spent uh, most of an hour BSing, and now we have to do content. I know, an actual show for you all. <laughs> it's called Strategy. <laughs> you know, for, for those of you at home, know that warm up is actually a thing. You should always do that. You want to be warm and warmed it, up. It does put us in a mood. Right, it puts us sometimes a bad mood, but it puts us sometimes in a mood. Sometimes rare enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gents, start off with a fun question. What is the dumbest way you've ever gotten hurt? I have to say, this is not an easy question because there are many, many candidates. <laughs> uh, well, I have an easy. All right, I'll dive in. I have an easy one because it is it is incredibly memorable. Uh, when I was fourteen. Uh, I fell off a like four foot tall, like playground piece of equipment and broke my ankle. And it feels like the stupidest thing because it was not very far. And it ended up being a rather significant ankle break that took me like four months in a cast to, to heal up. So it was like this significant thing from just not very much just, and it literally was just the, like the, I took one bad step backwards and fell off. And I've always thought of that and said, like, it's just... Can you tell if it's going to rain? No, it's like no lasting effect. So it just was like forever to heal. So it just feels like a really, really stupid one. Well, I have five brothers. So, you know, we did some stupid shit when I was a kid. (laughs) So the the list of of ways that I hurt myself is is quite long. Probably the biggest one that I would say in terms of like the lasting results that you can still see... uh, uh, I used to have this little workshop in the basement of our house and I took a one horsepower motor and a piece of aluminum and I made myself a fan. And of course it had no cage around it. And so one day I was leaning forward and I heard a little ting, 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 ting. And I looked down and it had pretty much shredded my kneecap and I didn't want to tell my parents. So I have this huge scar on my knee because I, I hid this injury from my parents. I was literally 10 years old at the time. So see, I swear, I think that's the measuring stick. It's not how severely you got injured. It's whether or not you hit it. Because in the moment, you knew it was stupid, right? Like, I, and oh, yeah. I will say, uh, like you, Carl, I have a long list. Uh, the most remarkable thing is that any young boy lives through a childhood that includes bicycles and electronics and skateboards. Like, none of us had any right to live Firecraft. through that stuff. Exactly. See? Silly stuff and, and all kinds of things that just go wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll default to a recent one. And I mean, you know, recent, just pre-pandemic. I've spent a million hours in airports. I know how to get from here to there. I could do all this stuff. But I could also point you to a place inside the Atlanta Hartsfield International Airport, the concourse right before you get in the security line, where if you're going particularly quickly down the hall and you cut the corner just so you can get in front of that crowd to get to the TSA line, there's a little metal pole that delineates 
you should go outside of this, not inside of this. And it's only about knee high. Uh, it, 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 A, includes a dent, and my knee includes a dent. That is, the, these are matching dents, and it was it split, and there was blood, and there was airport trauma, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, seriously, I, I can, my, my wife refers to it as not a bull in a China shop. It's bull in a China cabinet. Because if, if we're going outside, I could bump my head on something and get an injury. <laughs> well done. Well done. That's a, that's a, and that is one of those stories where it's like, he knows that very specifically. <laughs> <laughs> one final note before we leave this topic. If you pick up the latest Channel Pro magazine, it has a full page ad because I went to an ASCII conference with a black eye. And when they offered up the headshot photos... I pointed to my eye and said, I'm going to, I'd rather fight than switch away from ASCII. And they turned it into a full page ad. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> the story of that black eye is another great story. Nice. Well, speaking of communities, this podcast is sponsored by the Small Biz Thoughts technology community. Check them out at smallbizthoughts.org. Forms, templates, and checklists are just the start. The community includes all of the best-selling books on managed services in available formats and includes free training, member-only programs, and the best business training available to managed service providers anywhere. Plus, they have weekly live members-only Zoom calls. The average member saves more than 200% of their membership cost each year. They're totally dedicated to your success. Just because you're in business for yourself doesn't mean you have to go it alone. Join them today at smallbizthoughts.org. Excellent. Let's dive into our first topic, gentlemen. And uh, this one is one that's going to, you know, I don't know, this, this should cause some emotional reactions through our channel. Um, the, the story is about the SolarWinds folks. And the question is, is it possible that them being the source of the largest hack in the history of humankind was actually good for their business. Now, we're going to point to an article here, I think incredibly well written, that talks about what they have done since the hack, right? It's been 18 months. Everybody knows about it. You and I have had extraordinary conversations about not just being secure in yourself, but is your supply chain secure? And, and this article goes in and talks about all of the detailed work that they've done from, I would say, from a very sincere technology and operational perspective to completely reinvent security operations, DevOps, et cetera, and create what some would refer to as perhaps the most secure platform in the software industry. So my question to you guys is... Uh, is it actually a good thing to get hacked really hard in public? <laughs> well, I wouldn't necessarily say that's the obvious question. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, in some ways, I hearken back to the Tylenol fiasco, right? That the Tylenol poisoning just was turned into uh, a case study on this is how you handle that. Now, that doesn't mean Tylenol can never be poisoned again. Right. It doesn't mean there won't be the next challenge or the next bad guys coming after your company. Uh, but maybe this is not the permanent, you know, these, this is the safest place ever, but at least temporarily, it could be a model for this is what you actually do. Because there are vendors who basically uh, brush it off and say, wow, we escaped lucky that time. 
Um, and we've got a 10-year plan to upgrade our code to make it safer. Uh, so maybe this is a better model for how one handles these sorts of things. All right. I got to do two disclosures before I even say anything. The first is I'm a former employee of SolarWinds uh, from 2016 through 2019. And second disclosure, I am a shareholder in SolarWinds. So I have to make both those disclosures so you know my biases here. Uh, pivoting, from my perspective, pivoting into security is the only move they had. Uh, you've got new leadership that came in. Uh, you know, right around the time of, of the, the disclosures and the announcements. Uh, so leaning in is really all you had as a lever to, to recover the business. You've got a new leadership team who's setting a mark. You've got an opportunity to draw a line there. So this is, from my perspective as an analyst, it's like the only thing they had. I would be remiss if I did not point out, again, as a shareholder, the market has not rewarded them from any of this effort. It has been a continual decline from a stock market perspective the entire time. Now, they have not gone out of business, so let's observe. That's a thing, right? <laughs> They've right. not gone out of business. Uh, they are continuing to they, – they, they are a publicly traded company. You have the opportunity to dig into their financials. Uh, they have – you know, they, they've retained a portion of the market cap. They, they disclose their customer numbers. So – Maybe it's a fixer-upper for a long time, right? <laughs> like, you know, like you've got to get over that hump. But from my perspective, it looked like they're executing well the only plan they had in front of them. See, and, and I think that's a legitimate – I think it's a legitimate analysis, right? It was the only option. Kudos for legitimately committing to the track. Now, one of the killer points that I took away from the analysis is – they actually stopped new feature software development for seven consecutive months. They took literally 100% of the human capacity and bandwidth that they had, and they applied it to reinventing DevOps, reinventing the architecture of their security infrastructure, all the way through to the virtual machine infrastructure that they use to do the software builds once all the code has been written and they're publishing to a release-to-market candidate. Absolutely. Now, again, anybody who's a serious software head who knows how this stuff is done, you'll appreciate the read. And I would highly encourage you go go to the link in the show notes and actually do some of this digging. It was pretty impressive what I read through what they've done and how they've reintroduced it. My question now is, OK, so if you are vendor B or C or D and you didn't take that great big gnarly public hit and you didn't suffer that massive hack if i'm a customer that's considering among these platforms and you come to me and say well we think we have pretty good security we're trying really hard on security we do a lot of things that we think could prevent future problems compared to the, the solar wind guys can legitimately say we stripped it down to bare metal. We rebuilt the entire thing with three levels of architecture that is designed for security. I legitimately can't think of another software platform vendor that has done it that intensively. Ironically, that actually feels like a competitive advantage in the context of really embarrassing, terribly horrible. You, you almost went out of business, but you didn't go out of business. But now, hey. Gold standard. Can the other vendors measure up? 
But to Nate's point, they didn't go out of business. Not, not only did they not, they didn't get close. I mean, and you, and you forgot to mention Vendor K, right? You know, <laughs> there, there's, there's different approaches to this. One approach is to literally just dust it off and say, well, that's going to have a 1% effect on our profit over the next quarter. Um, and the other one is to say, all right, how do we prevent this going forward? In light of the next two topics, the social piece of this is huge. Right, because you can only do so much with technology, and it's great that they did it. And I hope it's the standard of how you respond to these things. But it doesn't solve all the problems. And it, and again, it's a point in time solution. And by the way, let's note, you know, since the campaign, they've recovered business with all nine of the federal agencies that were impacted. And I think that's no, that's notable. They they've won over business. So. From my perspective, let's watch, right? I'm a shareholder, like that one to go up. But I'm going to pivot us into topic number two, which is also related to uh, security, <clears throat> this time from our friends over at Twitter. Uh, Mudge, the, uh, the the Twitter whistleblower on, on security, has been testifying in front of Congress. Uh, and you know, I, I don't think we want to spend a bunch, bunch of time on the specific allegations here because you know they're shocking, guys. Shocking. Uh, there's <laughs> there's issues with quality control, and there's you know it's there there's issues with security in a commercial software firm. Shocking, everyone. Uh, I think that the, the questions that are worth talking about is uh, you know by the way they're not unique. Does, does anybody have it? Uh, and why are we as a society accepting this statement of, well, it's just too big and we just can't control it and we can't do anything about it. Why is everyone willing to take that answer? Well, and this gets back to the whole discussion about whether these are platforms or, you know, whether this is infrastructure, you know, the, the, the theory in the United States is that you can't sue AT&T because somebody used a telephone to insult you or to, uh, threaten you, right? Uh, because they're just a common carrier. And that somehow being platforms, they get to walk this line and say, you know, oh, we're just a, a carrier. We don't do anything. But that's not true. They filter like crazy, but they don't filter in ways that prevents them from making money. Not that Twitter's ever made money. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> If they fail, it will be because somebody wakes up one day and says, what the hell are we doing spending any time on Twitter? Uh, but, you know, that's a different story. The, the, the bottom line is they don't put resources into finding out about who's signing up for their services. They, they put no effort into whether or not these are fake profiles. We just are updating our own internal protocol for my company to see which of our followers are fake and getting rid of them. I mean, if we can do it with essentially no money, they can do it with trillions of dollars. Well, billions. see, and that's that's the deeper analysis, right? I think it is mind blowing that we live in a world where, uh, what was it, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, when we all heard the analysis that, you know, all these banks and financial institutions, they pulled boneheaded business decisions that put the, the global economy in survival peril. And yet we couldn't allow them to go bankrupt and we couldn't allow them to suffer the consequences of their own terrible business practices and decisions because they were too big to fail. So we had to bail them out. And I, I other than hedge fund bros and banker guys, I, I've not in the last 14 years, I've not heard a single human say, yeah, I'm totally okay with the fact that we bailed them out 
in spite of the fact that they were the ones who made the bad decisions and should have known better, and they didn't pay any consequences. And yet, here we are in 2022 making exactly the same argument about social media companies. Oh, it's too important. It, it's it's the town square. It is the way that the world communicates. We couldn't possibly tell them to stop doing what they do. And they tell us these platforms are just too big and too complicated. The volume of information is radically beyond their capability to even begin to conceive of how they could police that content. It's too big to fail. So we'll just put up with the fact that they have zero security and privacy infrastructure, and we're okay with that. My answer is, in precisely the same way that I reacted back in the the days of the moral hazard with the banking institutions. My answer is, if you can't manage your social media platform in a secure way, I will turn it off. And I don't think you should be allowed in the public square if what you do, you know, we know, everybody knows that it is just fraught with trash and security violations and yet you just shrug and go, I mean, guys, I built something that was way too big. There's no way to control it now. Guess we'll have to try again later. I, I don't accept that response. There's too many examples of them pivoting when it actually does matter uh, to, to actually point out that they can do all this. But but let me observe that, that they do it because they can, right? Because you can get away with it and there's no actual consequences to that. Now, will that change? Maybe. The White House just put out its statement on six principles of reining in big tech. And let me call out one of them. Number four is removing the special legal protections for large tech platforms, specifically calling for reform of Section 230. Now, we've had that debate all over, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of it. What I am going to sort of comment on is the, well, it feels like there's enough bipartisan support here to potentially do something um, around you know, around controls, they will only do as much as they are required to do in order to operate a business legally in the spaces that they want to legally. That's why they're way more interested in what people are saying in France than they're interested in saying in the United States because they know that the French auditors and legislators are actually moving on things as opposed to here where nothing happens. And they've said as much, literally said you, you've, there have been interviews where people at the big tech companies and the platforms have said, we're way more interested in what's going on in Europe because they have teeth and the U S hasn't done anything. That's actually the answer is, well, they'll do as much as they can. Well, and we discussed a few years ago when we were talking about Boeing and the 737 and sort of companies regulating themselves. I mean, what we've done is say, I, as a legislator, don't, I'm not smart enough to regulate Facebook or Twitter or anybody else. Um, and so we're just going to let them regulate themselves. Well, so far that hasn't worked out for us. Yeah. And, and see, again, to that point, right, because both of you guys have made that point, and I think we should end on that topic. Um, yes, this is about Twitter because they have a whistleblower who's testifying in front of Congress. But I, I challenge anyone out there to name me a social media platform that does have sufficient privacy and data security controls. None of them do. It's an entire industry of, you know, the metaphor that comes to mind is, you know, I make cars and I sell cars because going places is good and getting into a car and pushing on the gas pedal, that's all good. But you know what's really, really expensive? Brakes. 
I don't like paying for brakes on cars. And the fact that you <laughs> bought my car and you suffered a massive consequence because I didn't bother to put brakes in it. Well, you know, if you'd come to me years and years ago and said I should have maybe back then in startup days, I could have done something about it. But now I've got 10 million cars out there and it'd be way too expensive to go back and put brakes in all of them. So I guess we all just have to pay the consequences. Not. I, I, I just think that this is a category, an entire segment of our digital economy that has been allowed to run amok. And I think the answer is people got to just stand up and say, no, that's not good enough anymore. Either you can police your own platform, which, as you point out, Dave, clearly they can if they want to. But either you do it or somebody just needs to come in and say, no, nah, you know, the consequence is not a four billion dollar fine. Google. <laughs> right. A four billion dollar fine should change some behavior. But that's not enough. My answer is we just turned you off. Now, I don't want to I don't want to defend them, but I do want to call out an example of somebody who is who's done a little bit differently in the space is Reddit. Um, you know, Reddit, Reddit's choice to the way they've structured moderation does allow for delegation to individual groups and gives those groups more power. I'm not going to I'm not calling holding them up as saying this is the pinnacle of perfect content moderation. I will observe that their systems have been much more proactive to managing and curating this. And by the way, the other one that I will highlight, I use it as an example, is TikTok. Um, there is not nearly, mostly because it is so closely managed by the algorithms uh, that most of that kind of, that we don't have as much insight into it and we don't necessarily get the same kind of, of signaling back but they are very aggressive about making sure that that is much more of a positive environment without us knowing exactly what's going on. A big piece of this is advertising. And if there were not hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising focused on creating fake accounts, well, you might have less of a problem. So uh, they're less motivated to make a fix that's actually gonna cost them billions of dollars. Oddly enough, that leads us into topic number three, which is, uh, as you know, the security industry has been in desperate need of new jargon recently. So uh, this morning I came across a, an article that I, I wanted to highlight, and it's about sock puppet fishing, which just sounds wrong. But uh, we've pointed to an article here. So sock puppets are, is a new system that uh, actually Proofpoint refers to as multi-persona impersonation. So in this in this scheme, uh, the bad guys, for example, the uh, Iranian uh, terrorists, uh, will set up multiple email accounts, and they will include you and your friends in a string where they're talking to each other. So these two fake personas are talking to each other, creating social proof about something they want you to take action on. And because it's not just coming from one source, it reduces people's resistance. Now, again, this is a phishing attack. So ultimately what they want to do is to change your behavior, which is why I referenced it earlier, is that you know the, the programming is one piece of your security, but behavior is another piece. And I just think it's sort of like, ah, we are now entering the next stage of whatever's ahead of us uh, with just really smart people doing very complicated things. And if you imagine, that this has actually been going on longer than we know about it. There's these multi-personal 
impersonations that may have been going on for years and years and we're not just now getting visibility into it. Um, what do you guys think? Uh, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, so, so I, I've, I've had this, I've had this discussion with, with security colleagues of mine before where, where the, a lot of this has to come to do with the fundamental insecurity about email, right? So you don't have identity in email. It was, it assumes trust. I am ready to write a check for an email service. And I'm putting email service in quotes where my identity is verified and other users of it are also identity verified so that I, I can communicate with people in a way where I know I'm talking to the person on the other end, yet the mechanism is the same. And I will pay good money for this. So here's a question. Would you pay one penny for every email you send? I certainly would. I would if there was postage to it. I also know that because of the, the nature of this, you could probably charge just on a monthly, you know, I'll pay 10 bucks a month, right, for example. Like I would pay 10 bucks a month for an email service uh, where my identity is very, it is verified. It is it is uh, part of the system, and it it will never be perfect. I get that because there there are ways of of doing, but it would greatly reduce a large. So I could conduct business arrangements on this. I could have point to point communications. There is some level of verification to the system, and you essentially I'm calling for a rebuild of email because we've proved like you're not getting rid of email, but you can get rid of email. We have proven that over time we can phase out one protocol and put in another, and there should be plenty of opportunity here to do right. so. This is just a better, smarter version of phishing, right? They're just getting way oh, smarter yeah. at it. And by the kudos <laughs> to all the security nerds for a great naming of things, calling them sock puppets is always funny, right? Um, but but we're not actually addressing the core need, and 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 in a way because at some level I could question the well. Are too many people making money off old school email and are too many people making money off of quote unquote protecting email when in fact we really just need to abandon it because it's not secure enough and move to a better thing well see and that's the thing nobody would continue to do either email or phishing Absolutely. if it didn't actually work to a profit level that is satisfactory now i i will always say with great caution there's, it's never safe to assume that there's any security or phishing attack that is too dumb to be successful, right? <laughs> I still get it. I, I mean, I think it was literally this week I got an email, please, for your time, I am in Nigeria and I have dot, dot, dot. And I was like, holy crap, are they out there still doing that attack? And what it reminded me was, well, yeah, because it still works. Now, if you get inside the mind of the average human in a technology bubble who is receiving that kind of isolated communication, there's a certain persuasive level, right? If it's just you to me and I don't know any better, maybe that thing works. But humans are social animals, and by definition, we rely on the endorsement of others. It's why we listen to our friends about which restaurant we should go to. It's why we, when you decide where you're going to go for vacation, you talk to everybody you know. What did you enjoy? Where did you go? What would you recommend? Anytime there's a conversation that we are inserted into mid-flow, 
human psychology dictates that we are radically more likely to believe what is going on and then just assume that our next step is the logical next step, which is, of course, I should click on that link and see what's going on in the OneDrive account. It, 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 when, you, when you explain it like this, grown-ups look at each other and go, okay, that's dumb. There's no way any serious adult should ever get caught by that stuff. And yet, it obviously works or they wouldn't continue to do it. If a one-person, one-target uh, impersonation from Nigeria works as you add multiple players to the conversation, this is unfortunately really sophisticated thinking on the bad guy's part. So the, the problem is you're, it's, you're not going to fix the human brain, right? And if you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, I highly recommend you do so. It will help you understand so much of what's gone on in the last five years. But when the, the point is when we see something, our first instinct as human beings is to think it's real until we're proven otherwise. And on the internet, literally, we have to train people to take one second, like literally count 1001 and think, is this real or is this not real? <laughs> because until we can convince people to get into that habit, which is unnatural for us, then whatever level of phishing comes up, it's going to be successful. Maybe, I, you know, it, it's because, because, and I say maybe because I'm not always convinced that we can quote unquote train people in a new behavior like this. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm just not convinced. And, and well, that, so well, that, that's my point is it's, it's going to be really hard, but your instinct is different from what you have to do in this situation. But see, Dave, to your point on this, that is exactly the point. It is not, it's not a viable strategy for us as an industry to say, you know what? Email cannot be fixed and made secure because there's just too much non-verifiability to it. Let's move to a better platform. A hundred million Americans use email multiple times every single day. You will never root that out of their basic comfort zone. So it is on us as an industry. Don't, don't think about inventing a new tool that is secure. Think about ways to change human behavior to use the tools they already have in a more secure way. Sadly, we're out of time, but I will point out that it used to be 200 million people read a newspaper every day. <laughs> Good point. Fair enough. And sadly, that will bring us to the end of episode 182 of the Killing It. Killing it. Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.